bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean, and this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you pick up a signed copy of New York City's Heart Island, A Cemetery of Strangers, and the audiobook? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeene.com. The 60 or so Rikers prisoners, overseen by the corrections officer standing at the top of the trench, carried on as they'd done the previous weeks of their burial detail rotation. The tiny pine boxes were neatly stacked, five deep and five across, in Hart Island's sand and clay. The long mass grave which ultimately would hold 1,000 such coffins, bore no names or monument. No funeral was held. No mourners could visit. The only memorial was a dog-eared, handwritten ledger of the latest arrivals. Baby girl Saturn, three hours. Boy Samuel, one day. And... Anonymous. Jennifer Wynne received her Ph.D. from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She's an associate professor of criminal justice at the City University of New York. She's also a mitigation specialist and sentencing advocate. She has worked on 28 capital cases. None have resulted in the death sentence. As Professor Wynne has said, there's no such thing as no mitigation. And she's also the author of a fascinating book, Inside Rikers, Stories from the World's Largest Penal Colony. And she is with us today to discuss her book and her work. And Professor Wynne, welcome to Talking Hard Island. How are you today? Oh, I'm well. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, the first thought that came to mind when I was uh, planning this uh, interview 
was how did you develop this interest in criminal justice? Um, I was I was covering a story uh, for a New York City newspaper. This was back in the late '90s on a con artist who had uh, he would tell attractive women in the street that he was a casting director and wanted to make them stars. And he uh, ended up getting caught and and getting sent to Rikers. And I had to I was doing a story on con men in the city, and I went um, out there to interview him. And I was struck by the fact that number one. Nobody I knew, um, nobody I asked knew how to get to Rikers. I was just kind of asking, you know, colleagues and friends, like, God, how, how do you get to Rikers? This is before Google Maps, by the way. And I just, it, it occurred to me, like, here's this massive penal colony, like right in the East River, yet most New Yorkers couldn't couldn't find it on a map. And then the other thing that when I did get out there that struck me as strange was that I was, I was literally the only white person on the bus uh, on the way to Rikers and then in the visiting room. Um, where I met this man. And, you know, again, this was back in the late 90s before mass incarceration was a thing, before we knew about the racial disparities in, in such a glaring way as we do now in our criminal justice system. And so, you know, in fact, Rikers Island is 98% Black and Hispanic. And uh, to this day, it is r- roughly 95, say, um, which is about twice the representation of minorities in, in New York City. So I was just so intrigued about the criminal justice system going out there on that one interview that I decided to go on and uh, get my master's and my PhD in the field and um, and ultimately work in the field. So it was really basically like through a, a journalistic story that I ended up on, on Rikers. And then I um, ended up volunteering for a program called Fresh Start, taught uh, a writing class out there and directed a reentry program on Rikers for a number of years. And then uh, and then did some other things, and then ultimately got into uh, to teaching. You, you and I spoke once before, and you pointed out that Rikers is a jail and not a prison. Could you explain what the difference is between jails and prisons? Sure. So so actually, Rikers um, is a uh, uh, – there, there are 10 jails on Rikers, um, and, and jails are places where people who have been charged but not convicted of a crime – are sent and they're they're sent to jail typically because they can't afford bail. So if you were let's say uh, arrested for shoplifting, bail would probably be set at I don't know a couple thousand dollars, and you would probably make that bail and not go to jail. But if you were poor and you couldn't pay the bail um, to assure that you would come back to court, you would be sent to jail. So so jails are are places where people who are fighting their cases they've been charged but not convicted of a crime are held and prisons are either state or federal facilities where people who have been convicted of a felony crime are housed. If you're convicted of a misdemeanor crime, you do do your time in a jail. So jails have any jail will roughly have two thirds of the the people in a jail will be people who are fighting their case. They've been charged, but not convicted of a crime. And then the other third will be people who are serving a sentence for a misdemeanor that they have been either pled guilty to or convicted of. What happens to somebody who is arrested can't make bail? I mean, how long could they conceivably spend at Rikers? So so this is, you know, this is when we talk about mass incarceration and how is it that America has come to, you know, incarcerate at a rate that is eight times the rate of any other Western democracy and, you know, has the highest number of people behind bars. 
jails is really the starting point because people can spend. So just to give you a real life example, I was on Rikers a couple of years ago as part of the mayor's violence reduction program. We were trying to implement some programs and some very violent jails on Rikers to help reduce the number of stabbings and slashings. And um, there was literally a guy in our little program who had been rotting in that on Rikers Island. He, he was, it was a pretty, you know, serious charge. It was, he was attempted murder, but he'd been rotting in jail for almost five years, almost five years. And we had several individuals in this, in this one jail on Rikers who had been there for over three years. And, you know, part of it is because, you know, when a lot of people are arrested because you have a major, a very large police force, such as NYPD, and you um, have a clogged court system where things are just delayed and delayed and delayed, you know, justice is delayed and people don't get their day in court for, for sometimes up to for years. It's these are the dirty little secrets that our criminal justice system hides from the view of, of most people and certainly people who have any means. If you don't have means, meaning money, you will see the underbelly of American criminal justice and you will likely never get out of it. I mean, it's so hard once you are if you're convicted of a crime in this country, it is very hard to to claw your way out from under the stigma and all of the collateral consequences that come with it. But I don't want to get off on a tangent here. Well. Uh, let's 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 get off in a little bit of a tangent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wh- why? I mean, I realize that you're asking me questions, and sometimes I keep going <laughs> that's down. A, that's that's, that's down okay. Rabbit holes. I'll do yeah. what I do. You do what you do. Perfect, well, let perfect. me ask you this: Why is Rikers considered? Maybe you've already answered in a way. One of the worst facilities that you could be in, even including some of the major prisons <laughs> in New York State. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, so. First of all, Rikers, I mean, the, the rate of violence on Rikers and violence is defined as stabbings, slashings, fights, homicides. Um, Rikers has always had a very high level of violence. There have been times where it's dipped, you know, but basically anything can happen to you on Rikers, anything. There's a culture among the corrections officers that, you know, might makes right. And the island itself, because this jail is on an island, right, separated from New York City by a mile-long bridge, it's kind of like an out-of-sight, out-of-mind, which is, I mean, most prisons, at least in this state, are, you know, way in the hinterlands of New York in very rural areas. But there's, this, I think, the isolation of Rikers and it's the way the guards union has had so much control and power for decades that has made it a place. And I also think because it's filled with, you know, poor black and brown men from New York city, not rich white kids from the suburbs that it's like the Island of the forgotten and, you know, correction officer training is, is not, not very good. Um, the facilities themselves, the layout does not, um, support or facilitate good, supervision so there are lots of you know blind you know tunnels where inmates have to travel through or or areas of in the jails where you know people can be literally just kind of hidden away um there's it just you know for so many reasons you you can count the reasons why the violence out there is so high um but partly it's it's a culture that supports that i mean horrible horrible things have happened to people to humans out there 
in the past, let's say five years that have gotten some attention, like the man who was baked to death in his cell. He died in his cell after being locked in a solitary confinement for over a week. He wasn't fed. And the the, the temperature in his cell, because the heating in some of these facilities is so erratic because they're so old, had had been over 105 degrees. And he he just died of the, he he was, you know, he died of heat and, and, uh, and neglect. And, and other many other incidents incidents that have gotten a lot of um, attention. So, I mean, yeah, Rikers is a pretty awful place, and I'm I'm glad the city is looks like it's pretty sure, you know, set on a course of closing it down over the next five to ten years. You you mentioned that there's a tunnel system at Rikers. Can you some talk- of the, some of the some of the facilities like 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 a, a school building might be connected to a jail, and you get there through a tunnel. You know what I mean? And so inmates right. are walking through a tunnel underneath, you know, underneath uh, the, the the jail, um, and you know they're blind spots. And you know, I think too, you have you know you have a dormitory with let's let's say fifty inmates and two guards. You know, who the dormitory is the size of let's say you know small gymnasium. A correctional officer can't see what's going on at, at the way end of, of, of the you know of the dorm. You know, they can't see what's happening in a bathroom. So it's it's really kind of a, it's most, uh, I mean, I think, you know, many jails and prisons in this country are, are very violent places that people just don't, you know, necessarily care about. And and so Rikers Island is particularly bad. And, uh, and I'm glad it's being shut. I, yeah. I, I mean, I think the place should be bulldozed. You know, speaking of that, I, I believe Rikers is a man-made island, isn't it? Do you, it is. It is. How did yeah, that come yeah. about? How did they make the island? Well, the island? excavation from the subway system um, expanded it to up to like 450 acres. So it's a, I mean, it was actually a, a massive garbage heap for, for, it was a garbage dump for years. And and that's where the city, you know, threw its trash. And then ultimately it was expanded and, and, and fires would be set to burn the trash. And then it was one point it was it was overrun with rats and then dogs were brought in to eat the rats i mean it's just such a ghoulish actually history too um and then ultimately there was you know landfill sanitized landfill and but the the whole place kind of smells and you know it's a very it's also a very bad place to work because there's nothing out there besides jail so if you have a lunch break it's not like you can you know, go, go, go to a nice park and take a walk. I mean, you can't even walk around on the island. Do you know what I mean? So in many ways, the staff are hostage are held hostage out there too, you know, or feel like they're in, in doing time because there's just, you know, we, you can't leave the island on a break. So you're there for, you know, eight hours straight. And sometimes they do overtime. I mean, often they do overtime, you know, um, and it's, 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 you know, there, there are planes from LaGuardia airport that are screeching overhead. So if you're trying to teach a class, as I was doing when I was out there, you know, every 15 minutes, you know, you'd, you'd have this deafening roar and, you know, you have to stop what you were doing. And, um, yeah, so this, I mean, it's so like modern jails, good jails, quote unquote. There are some in this country, like in Denver, they have a brand new jail. And uh, it's, you know, it's light, and it's bright and it's connected to the courthouse in the city. You know, this, this the thing about Rikers, too, why it's so costly is that. For the roughly now, say, 7,000 people who are there who have been charged but not convicted of a crime, 
they have to be bussed into New York City. They have to be, you know, they're awakened at like five in the morning, shackled, put on a bus and driven into, you know, into Manhattan, Brooklyn or the Bronx with all the traffic to to go sit in the courtroom and their case might be, you know, uh, this, you know, the date might be postponed to another day, you know, adjourned to another day or whatever. So, so the transportation costs alone, just busing everybody into the city so that they can have their day in court, which is most likely not the conclusion of their case is a tremendous part of the budget of, of Rikers is the, the transportation costs. So good jails, modern jails are connected to the courthouses. It's amazing. You know, I, and they're I, smaller in size. And so that, that's the city's plan, right? Is to, is to get rid of, you know, to close down the jails on Rikers and then to create smaller jails in each of the boroughs, except for Staten Island. Uh, so the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. I uh, preface this episode, I preface this episode by describing uh, a scene of uh, prisoners, Rikers prisoners on Hart Island, uh, being a part of a burial detail, which they've been yeah. doing for decades and decades, yeah. and which they do to this day. And, and I believe yeah. that you had some unique access to, I guess, what they call the Grave Digger Squad. Yeah, could, could, yeah. You, could you describe that? And also, I believe you had a chance to talk to some of these Hart Island Grave Diggers, quote unquote. Sure, sure. So, so the men who do the grave digging on Rikers. They, they're housed in the, the jail that I worked in, which is the one jail for sentenced inmates. So these are individuals who have been sentenced to a year or less for a misdemeanor crime, for a low-level crime. And because they don't have a history of violence or a history of escape, they've been, and because they're interested, they would volunteer to be part of as for their work detail. Cause in, in all jails, you can't just sit in your bed all day. You have to, you have to have some, some work detail that you have to do to work. So they uh, were um, a part of what was the, what is the grave diggers uh, squad. And they get on a little ferry and they go out to heart Island and they um, dig the graves for the lost and forgotten and, penniless people of New York. And the the men I knew who had worked out, out, out on Hard Island digging graves, they would speak about how, I mean, for many, for a lot of inmates, for inmates, for inmates who were not um, like suspicious and like kind of spooked about ghosts or things like that, um, superstitious is what I meant to say, um, if you weren't superstitious, this was a kind of a coveted work detail because it's quiet. You're not, you're, you get, you know, you're outside, you get to smell the fresh air. Um, and there was also a, a sense that um, they were doing important work by burying people who were forgotten. But I think, you know, some of them would talk about how, they would see themselves like they saw their own future in the, in the, in the, in the, in the pine boxes that they were burying. If they didn't stop what they were doing, if they didn't get off drugs, which many of them were addicted to drugs and that's what, what drove their criminality. But they would speak about how, you know, it was every day on that work detail with every little pine box, whether it was a baby or larger one of you know, that, that they would see themselves 
you know, if they didn't stop what they were doing. And it, it just was a, a, a way for them to, re, to, to recommit to their desire to stay out of jail and to try to do the right thing and get clean and not come back because they, they knew that if they didn't, they would die and they would be forgotten because many of them had, you know, been to Rikers a bunch of times. They were kind of doing a life sentence one, one six month bit at a time. And, uh, you know, I think knew that their, their years of that were limited you know, and, and it had a special uh, like importance. You know, it'd be interesting if it would ever be possible to do a follow-up study <clears throat> and, and, and uh, take a look yeah. at the recidivism rate of, mm. of people on the burial <laughs> squad, um, yeah. as opposed to, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, oh, three or four minutes we have left, I want to segue a little bit, uh, to your work as a mitigation specialist and sentencing advocate. Um, what would be mitigating circumstances? I mean, somebody has been convicted of a crime, obviously in many cases, very serious, uh, but what could be mitigating, and, and what does that really mean as we as we look at that? Sure, sure. So uh, let's just we'll, we'll talk about in, in capital cases, on death penalty cases. The Supreme Court has has basically said that people like me, mitigation specialists, um, are required on each death penalty team of, of defense team. So on a typical death penalty case, you'll have two lawyers and one mitigation specialist, as well as a private as a, as an investigator. Um, and the job of the mitigation specialist, I mean, essentially the job of a defense team in a capital case is to is to convince the jury that despite the grave acts of murder and aggravated murder, right? We're not, you know, drug dealer shoots drug dealer is not going to be a, a death penalty case. Death penalty cases are, you know, children were killed, other vulnerable people were killed, more than one person was killed, a person was killed and tortured, you know, it was a hit, something like that. Um, in these types of cases, we try to find enough um, what we call mitigation to prevent the jury from sentencing the person to death. The victory is life in prison without parole, which to me is really a pretty shallow victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. Um, and the, in, in, in a, over two dozen death penalty cases I've worked on, I would say almost every one of them have had these common mitigators. One, a history of severe sadistic child abuse. Two, a history of severe mental illness that was undiagnosed, untreated, or, and or untreated. Um, and three, at the time of the crime, the person was drunk or high on some kind of drugs. So what's interesting to me is that these, these, you know, on some level we can, we, we, we know what in many ways we, we know what, what, what elements, right. will will create people who kill and we can address these issues on a societal level, on an individual level. And, and, I, and, and sadly, a lot of these issues only get identified when a per, after a person has killed, you know? So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, your, uh, your remarks have been, uh, eye-opening to say the least and, uh, and totally fascinating. And, and I want to mm. thank you for, uh, being a guest on Talking oh, Heart pleasure. Island. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Hi, this is Norma Jean 
I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. (music) 